Let's turn to uh, Exodus 14, where we were last night. Exodus 14. And once you have turned there, we will pray. What a blessing the conference has been so far. And uh, this is a theme, of course, that we could hear time and time again. Because we so often uh, lose touch with this truth and need to be reminded of it. But let's pray and ask God to bless us as we look at his word. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your wonderful grace and your goodness to us, Father, in, Lord, giving us eternal life, in, Father, us, uh, Father bringing us into your, your eternal family, uh, Father, uh, having fellowship with us in this world, and, Lord, even for the privilege of being able to serve thee. Lord, we realise just how unworthy we are, that all that we are and all that we do is because of your grace. And we pray now even for your grace this morning upon each and everyone here that we might hear with attentiveness, Lord, that any, anything that might rob us, Father, of a full concentration upon you and upon your precious word, Father, would be driven away. Lord, fill me with thy spirit now and hide me behind the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, a nine-year-old boy named Danny once came bursting out of Sunday school and uh, trying to locate his mother or father. And after a quick search, he found his dad and uh, came up to him and said, Dad, the story of Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea was great. His father looked down and smiled and asked the boy to tell him about the story. Well, the Israelites got out of Egypt, but Pharaoh and his army chased after them. So the Jews ran as fast as they could until they got to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was getting closer and closer. So Moses got on his walkie-talkie and told the Israeli Air Force to bomb the Egyptians. <laughs> and while that was happening, the Israeli Navy built a pontoon bridge so that people could cross over and they made it out. And by now the dad was shocked. Is that what they taught you in Sunday school today? Well, not exactly, Danny admitted. But if I told you the way that they told it to us, you'd never believe it, Dad. <laughs> and unfortunately there are many who do not believe the Bible's account of God's deliverance through the Red Sea. So much so that they have to invent ideas to try and to explain it away. And probably there's no, uh, no other place in the Bible except for probably Genesis 1 and 2 where people have, have tried to explain away the plain teaching of God's word. The Bible, taken as it is, represents this as, an, uh, as a miraculous intervention of God to show his all-sufficient ability to save and to keep his people safe. Of course, ultimately to glorify himself. And it is through demonstrations like this that we are taught to trust in God's all-sufficiency, his all-sufficient ability to keep us safe. Of course, last night we began this message. We looked at the decision of Pharaoh to follow up the Israelites as they escaped from their bondage. And it reminds us, of course, when we saw last night, that God was the one who was leading. 
every step of the way, God was the one who was uh, directing them and he brought them to this place of extremity. He brought them, as we mentioned last night, to this tight place where he could demonstrate his ability to save, his ability to protect and thus show his all-sufficiency. And the tight place reminds us how, how de- dependent we are upon the Lord, how, how desperately we need uh, our Lord Jesus Christ and, and the saving power that he has. We saw also the despair of the people. They wanted to give up. Israel was hemmed in by the physical geography, the mountains and the seas, but they were also pursued by the world's mightiest army. And while they cried out unto the Lord, we saw last night, this was not a faith-filled cry. It was a cry of criticism and complaint. They blamed Moses, even though God was the one who was leading them. And even though they had witnessed God's wonderful signs and wonders poured out upon Egypt. And the root of the problem, we said, was their short-sightedness and their failure to remember the Holy Spirit's divine interpretation of the event we saw uh, there in Psalm 106 and verse 7 was that our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but they provoked or they rebelled against him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. And When we remember and reflect upon what God has done in the past, it will become noticeably easier to trust the Lord in the present distress. Reflecting upon God's mighty works in the past is faith-building and, and a soul-strengthening exercise. But we take up the narrative where we left off last night. And not only do we see the decision of Pharaoh to follow up and the despair of the people that they wanted to give up, but thirdly, we see the declaration of Moses. The declaration of Moses, it is a declaration to look up. Look up, for God will deliver you out of this tight place. Let's read verses 13 and 14. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians... Whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. From the people's perspective, it appeared that the situation was hopeless. It was a hopeless situation. It appeared that there was no way out. But the reality was just the opposite. It was a reality that transcended appearance and that could only really be laid hold on by faith. And so Moses tells them exactly how faith should respond, how they should respond to this seemingly hopeless situation. He starts with a rebuke and an encouragement. In verse 13, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. And as we said in an earlier message, in the earlier message, uh, the people's preoccupation with only what they could see in the present led them to fear and unbelief. 
They saw the Egyptians and they were afraid. On the other hand, Moses says, don't fear. Fear and don't fear. There's the options. He points them then to look up. To look up and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. The dust that the chariots were kicking up could be easily seen by the congregation as they huddled there beside the Red Sea. But how do you see the salvation of the Lord? When all that you can see are the physical problems, the physical dangers. How do you see the salvation of the Lord? But that is just it. To see the salvation of the Lord, we must avert our eyes from off the plains, from whence the trouble comes, and we are to look up. Look up unto God. Look up to God with eyes of faith. We are to look up unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We see the salvation of the Lord by looking to him. It is, as A.W. Tozer said, faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. Faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. Beloved, if we want to see uh, God's salvation, if we want to see God's protection, then don't look around about. Look up unto God. Look to the Lord. As long as you fixate upon the visible troubles around you, then you will panic. I think of Peter, the Apostle Peter. The day when the Lord Jesus Christ walked out unto them on the storm on the boisterous sea. And Peter said, Lord, if that be you, let me come out. And he's already possibly showing some sign of doubt there by asking if that be you. But nevertheless, the Bible tells us that when he went out, that he saw the seas, how boisterous they were. He took his eyes off the Lord and began to see the circumstances around about him. And he began to sink. His faith failed him. He was looking at all of the circumstances around about. But when when by faith you look up to God and you see him as the unseen reality, then you will not be afraid. You will hear the reassuring words of God's all-sufficiency for our safety. You will hear God say, fear ye not. That is God's word of rebuke, but also his encouragement to us. A rebuke because we do fear, even though we know who our God is, even though we've seen him work, even though we know he saved our soul. We still fear when we have Troubles come across our Christian walk. It's a word of rebuke, but also a word of encouragement. And beloved, God always tells us we are not to fear, even when confronted with very real and fearful circumstances. This was no illusion that Egypt was bearing down upon them. It was a real circumstance, but in the midst of real circumstances that where, where there is danger where there is difficulty where there is suffering he says fear ye not because he is all sufficient beyond anything that we might ever experience 
God's word is to, always to us is fear ye not. In fact, as Pastor Harold Davies used to say, oftentimes in our church, there are 366 fear nots in the Bible, one for every day of the year and even one for a leap year. Every day we, are, we face challenging circumstances, trying situations, frustrating problems, and every day God's word to us is fear ye not he is sufficient for our safety he is sufficient for all the eventualities of life but before we continue let me make one caveat here the 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 faith that we have been speaking about the faith to look up to god is not wishful thinking moses is not telling the people to engage in the power of positive thinking faith is not blind optimism It is faith in a self-existent, self-sufficient God that makes all the difference. See, it's not the amount of faith that will win the day, but it is the object of the faith. Sometimes people get to think that if they just believe hard enough, then it will happen. If they just believe that everything is going to turn out all right, then they can make it happen. And really, they're believing in magic. That is not faith. That is just positive thinking. That is just wishful thinking. Faith is not just believing hard enough to make it happen. It wasn't Israel's believing that dried up the Red Sea. It was the Lord that they believed in that delivered them from their dilemma. The object of the faith is what makes all the difference. Faith is believing God. Its focus is the Lord, the Lord's person, the Lord's promises, the Lord acting on behalf of his people. Faith's object is the Lord and it is the Lord who does the delivering. That, it is that dependence upon God that he rewards with his actions. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us without faith it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. A rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Or we might put in the context here of of those who diligently look to him in faith. Beloved, we need to learn that God is all-sufficient when it comes to our safety, when it comes to our protection. He is more than enough to protect us from those who would seek to harm us. Isn't this where oftentimes where the rubber meets the road? We can, we can trust the Lord for ourselves, and Pastor Minnick was mentioning this last night, but it's so often when it comes to our children that we have the real difficulty in trusting the Lord in protection, in safety, in their spiritual welfare. But God loves our children more than, he lo- than we love them. And he, he wants their, you know, their, the, the best for them more than we want the, the best for them. Beloved, we can trust the Lord even for the lives of our children, even for their spiritual lives. Now that doesn't mean that they can't go off the rails because they have to make choices too. But even in that, we can trust God, that God is working in their lives. If they're saved, that, that he, will, he can bring them back. 
If they're not saved, then, then they can be saved. Many parents have testified to the Lord after many years that the Lord has brought their wayward children back. But the declaration of Moses continues. Moses now gives a promise that this would be the last time that they would see the Egyptians. Verse 13. The Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. God was going to remove the problem forever. And sometimes God's deliverance is like that. The problem is here one day. The problem is gone the next. That doesn't always happen. But God is more, more than sufficient to be able to do that. And God was going to remove this problem forever. But notice also in verse 14 that he was going to do it by fighting their battles for them. The Lord shall fight for you, he says. For the most part, we live in a self-help society. We mentioned that on Sunday morning. A self-help society where our pride dictates that we must deliver ourselves. Or at the very least, we need to roll up our sleeves and we need to get busy and at least in some way we need to contribute to our deliverance. Beloved, many people live by that false adage. You've probably heard this. God helps those who help themselves. Sounds biblical, but it's not. Here Moses tells Israel that God would do the fighting for them. They just had to stand still and to hold their peace. And God was the warrior. God was the champion. God was in this sense like Goliath, the one who represented, who fought on behalf of the nation. And he would come to their aid. He would fight their battle. And in this battle, the Israelites were just spectators. And the same is true today. God fights our battles. We think that we need to go out and fight our battles today, but it's not true at all. It is Christ who who fights our battles through us. When we go out in all of our self-confidence, assured by our own wisdom and our own power, what happens? We end up flat on our faces, defeated every time. The battle is fought by depending upon the multiplied facets of God's character, the many precious promises that God has made in His Word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 reminds us, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He tells us, beloved, that he will do the fighting. That he will do the fighting when we stand still and hold our peace. When we do that, we will see the salvation of the Lord. For us, looking back to the cross, we, we know that the battle has already been fought and won. Christ arose from the grave victoriously and all who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death and into his burial but also into his resurrection and because he is the victor, we are victors also. And the Christian life 
It's not about what we do now to become better people, but it is about what Christ has done through the cross and through the empty tomb. It is Jesus who has done everything for us. And that is why we must look to him. We must look to him. The sufficiency is to be found in Christ. In his work and in his merits. Which are all sufficient. But did you know that there are a lot of people who are on a religious treadmill? who by their own efforts are trying to gain God's favour. They are looking to themselves because of a misguided belief in their own sufficiency. And this can be true of born-again believers as well as those who are merely religious but lost. They are trying to affect their own deliverance by self-reliance and self-dependence. We call that legalism. Legalism. But let me say before we, we get on to that, that legalism is not the, not the, uh, uh, is not, the, you know, is, is not the setting up of standards. All right? You can have standards and you can keep them legalistically. Yes, that is possible. But beloved, Standards by themselves is not legalism. If that was the case, then God would be a legalist. God has standards for us. But what is legalism? Well, legalism is simply the attitude which seeks to earn or merit the blessings of God by religious rituals or good works for either salvation or sanctification. Let me repeat it again. Legalism is simply the attitude which seeks to earn or merit the blessings of God by religious rituals or good works for either salvation or sanctification. When we think that we must contribute either to our salvation or sanctification, it is then that we have descended into a legalistic mindset, thinking somehow that God needs our help. That we must contribute. That he is not sufficient for all of these things. Legalism is the religious mask for human self-reliance. For self-transformation. For self-salvation. And all of the work on this religious treadmill ultimately leads to slavery. Paul warned the Galatians in Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You know, when you seek to determine your own meaning, your own significance, your own security, your own protection, your own safety, you are actually bringing yourself into bondage. Because you get on that religious treadmill where what is what 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 you're relying upon is your power, your strength to get that thing moving. And it feels like slavery because it is. And all of this leaves you with the feeling of guilt and condemnation, a sense of hopelessness and spiritual bankruptcy. 
self-reliance will always end in failure. Always. Because God will determine that it, that it does. The answer to seeking deliverance through our own self-reliance and self-dependence is to look outside of ourselves to Jesus Christ and to his finished work on our behalf. The answer is always to look up. To look up to the Lord Jesus Christ who is, after all, the, both the author and the finisher of our faith. It is, as someone has said, the gospel always directs you to something, someone outside yourself instead of to something inside of yourself with the assurance that you crave. We understand that for salvation, don't we? That, that when it comes to salvation, we don't look within, but we look without. Christ is the one who suffered for us. He's the one who bore our sins. He's the one who saves us completely. But oftentimes when it comes to sanctification, we think, well, uh, somehow we have to do something, that we must take some, some part in this. And yes, the Bible does tell us to strive in certain areas of the Christian life, to strive in prayer, to strive against sin. But that striving is not done in the flesh. That striving will only, be, will, will, will only be effectual if it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 28 and 29, speaks of the fact that he was, his ministry was to perfect Christians and he, and he worked hard at it. He labored diligently towards that aim. But he says, it wasn't me that really was doing it. It was the Spirit that was in me. The Spirit empowered him. And that's what it is in the Christian life. That's the balance we have to have. It's really all of God. It really is. The rest, the peace, the hope that we're looking for comes from Christ. Not from ourselves. Let me read a quote to you from Charles Haddon Spurgeon that puts all of this in perspective. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and his merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking to our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Oh, beloved, what a glorious way to put it. What a wonderful way. Beloved, this, this quote came across my path as an answer to prayer. One of my sons was going through a difficult time when he was experiencing self-condemnatory guilt about his efforts to walk in the Lord and his failure at it. 
And for a long time, he was miserable. We didn't know why until he finally confessed to us that was what he was feeling. And as a father, I didn't really know how to encourage him. And so I went away and prayed. And within a week, God brought this quote across my path. And I took it to him and we, we prayed about it. We ex- I explained it to him. And the Lord really helped him to look not to himself, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that even in his failures, the Lord was there to lift him up and pick him up again. And the Lord was there when he confessed that sin. He was faithful and just to forgive, forgive those sins and cleanse him from all unrighteousness. See, this is simply what Moses meant when he said, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. This is what Moses meant. That Christ is our deliverer. And whatever it is that has entangled us or beset us or overcome us or boxed us in, the answer is always to look up. To look up for Christ for our deliverance. Not to look to ourselves, to our efforts or our traditions. So who or what is the object of your faith? what is your faith placed in or maybe more accurately who is your faith placed in William Gurnall the one who wrote that wonderful exposition on the armour the Christian armour said this he said one almighty is more than all mighties one almighty is more than all the mighties that are in this world and even today beloved the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. Isaiah 59.1 says, And only the Lord can lead his people into victory. And he does so when we express reliance upon him. When we look to his self-sufficiency, his all-sufficiency, Whenever we find ourselves, beloved, in tight places, boxed in by numerous little difficulties or maybe even one big hardship, we must look to the Lord for salvation. This is the experience of David centuries later. In Psalm 20, if you want to keep your finger here and go to Psalm 20, David there conveyed trust in the Lord. Trust in in the battles, in the, in the military battles that he was facing. Beloved, the same truth applies, of course, to the battles that we face in the Christian, in the Christian warfare. Verse 1, Psalm 20 says, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings, and accept thy burnt sacrifice. Grant thee according to thine own heart, and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation, God's salvation, and in the name of our Lord will we set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the, sa- with the saving strength of his right hand. 
some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, let the king hear us when we call. Oh, beloved, what a, what a declaration of faith here. What is David saying here when he's pointing to the Lord? He's expressing the same sentiments as Moses there in Exodus chapter 14. The fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, because it's the Lord who shall fight for you. Ye shall hold your peace. Do you acknowledge your dependence upon the Lord? Proof of the pudding is in the one that you look to in the tight places of life. Do you look up? Tight places? Or do you look down around on all the difficulties? Beloved, to look down is to, is to descend into panic, just like Israel. Moses declares that we are to look up and so in this passage we see the decision of Pharaoh to follow up the despair of the people that they wanted to give up, the declaration of Moses calling us to look up. But lastly, if you go back to chapter 14, Exodus 14, we will see the decree of God. The decree of God was to lift up. Lift up his rod and part the Red Sea. Look in verses 15 and 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. But lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. See, God gave Moses here the instructions that he needed to accomplish the will of the Lord. He was to lift up his staff, to lift up the rod, and the waters would be parted. But you might ask, and, 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 and if you do, it's a perceptive question. You might ask, well, didn't you just say before that God was going to do all of the work? Well, isn't Moses involved here at this time? Isn't he the one who's lifting up the rod? Isn't he helping the Lord? Well, let me say that in reality, Moses' part in this in this deliverance is really incidental. Clearly the main actor in the rest of chapter 14 is God. God gave Moses the privilege of being the human instrument through, through which this deliverance came. But all of the power and therefore all of the glory really belongs to God. You know, a good, good illustration of this is found in Jim Berg's book, Changed into His Image. Pastor Minnick mentioned it this morning. And there he gives the illustration of the boy who goes to the store with his father to buy that bicycle. If you've done that, 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 that course of read the book, then you would, you would recognize that a wonderful illustration. You know, he, he puts down the 25 cents on the counter and tells the, the, tells the checkout person that uh, he wants to buy that bike which costs $100. Meanwhile, his father motions that he'll make up the difference. So the boy takes out his, his bike, uh, thinking he's just paid 25 cents for it, that he's done all, all the hard lifting, as it were, all the saving and all of this stuff. And then his father writes out a check for $99.75. Did that boy's 25 cents purchase the bike? 
No, the father bought the bike. The boy's 25 cents was really an indication that he wanted what his father was really willing to give. But without his father, he would have never had the bike. In fact, that 25 cents came from the father in the first place. It was his pocket money. All of it came from the Father and so it is with the parting of the Red Sea and so it is in all of our Christian life when we do anything for, for the Lord we might expend much effort, much labour we, we might be exhausted at the end of it but really all of it is from God all of it God didn't need Moses but he was the human agent through which God did all of the work And there really was no place for boasting on Moses' part except in in boasting in God. And that is exactly what he did. We won't look at chapter 15, but that's exactly what he did in, in Exodus 15. All the glory for this mighty deliverance, for God's protecting power, for his sufficient safety went to the Lord. All Moses did was lift up the rod to indicate that God was ready and willing to do all the saving. God alone was sufficient to keep his people safe. Notice the rest of the chapter gives us the the details about how God did the saving. And God firstly moved his guiding pillar between the Egyptians and the Hebrews in order to give them time to cross the Red Sea. Look at verses 21 and 22. Moses stretched out his hand. uh, Sorry. Verses 19 and 20, I've jumped ahead a little bit. Verses 19 and 20. And the angel of the Lord, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light and night to these so that the one came not near the other all the night. A cloud became a source of light to the fleeing Israelites, but a source of darkness to the pursuing Egyptians. The cloud, of course, was the visible representation of God's presence with his people. The angel of the Lord, which here could be a Christophany, a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ, switched from being the guide to being the guardian of the Israelites, putting himself between the enemy and his people. And God does that today. Beloved, he is the barrier. He is the hedge. Sometimes we pray about God being a hedge of protection about us. He is that hedge that protects his people Secondly, we see as Moses stretched out his rod over the sea that the Lord caused a strong east wind to part the waters of the Red Sea. Verses 21 and 22. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon dry ground. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Yeah, the Hebrews, praise God, were able to cross on dry ground. That wind was not only able to to divide the waters, but to dry the land so that they were able to cross on dry ground. 
There's nothing worse. I mean, Pastor Davies was telling us about old Camp Murrindindi and when it rained there, you, you grew six inches taller because you know, all the mud that got caught to the bottom of your shoes. There's nothing worse than trying to cross something, you know, in, in, in muddy, you know, in, in, in something that's soggy. But God gave them dry ground. That itself is a great miracle. Of course, there are many scholars and critics who deny the literal statements of the Bible. They deny it was a miracle or they even they try to find natural explanations for the things that took place. Of course, we've heard, no doubt all of us have heard of those who say that the Red Sea was really the Reed Sea, a shallow, swampy, marshy lake that was filled with papyrus reeds and that the Israelites were able to navigate across. Story is told, told of a liberal minister preaching in an old Bible-believing African-American church. At a certain point in his sermon, the minister referred to the crossing of the Red Sea. Once someone in the, in the congregation shouted out, Praise the Lord! Taking all them children through the deep waters! What a mighty miracle! However, the minister did not happen to believe in miracles, and so he said rather condescendingly, It was not a miracle. They were in a marshland. The tide was ebbing, and the children of Israel picked their way across in six inches of water. Praise the Lord! The man shouted again. Drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. (laughs) Beloved, it's much harder to believe the explanation of the critics than it is to to believe the plain statements of the Bible. Verse 29 states that the water was walls on the left hand. On the right, look at verse 29. The children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. In Moses' song of praise for God's wonderful deliverance, we have an interesting statement in chapter 15 and verse 8. Let's read that verse. Chapter 15, verse 8. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright as an heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea congealed the word congealed here what an interesting word strong's concordance states that this can mean to thicken to condense to become dense the word can be used of curdled milk or even of frozen water god's mighty power is able to solidify the water so that for the time for, for that time they it became like solid walls Solid walls to the right of them and solid walls to the left of them. I don't know. Maybe God had a giant packet of aeroplane jelly and he poured it out there and it became jelly. I don't know. I doubt it, but it, it, it got congealed anyway. But what I do know, it was all by the mighty hand of God. That much I know. By the blowing of the wind all night, the ground was dried up so that the nation could cross over. God was keeping his people safe. Thirdly, the evidence of God's sufficiency continues. All sufficiency continues. Read verses 23 and 24 with me. 
And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and through the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. Several points can be made here. First, that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and his men to chase the Hebrews through the the parted sea. That was mentioned back in verse 17. We'll come back uh, to that later. But Pharaoh thinks that God has made a blunder and that he can still fulfill his aim of capturing the, the nation of Israel. What foolishness! What madness! What blindness! Here he's seeing a miracle. God, the Lord, Jehovah, the great I am, parting the waters, making a way of escape, and he still thinks that he can accomplish his goals. What foolishness. What madness. What can account for this? Simply the hardening of his heart by God. On any other day, Pharaoh would have been too fearful to follow Israel into that great chasm. Beloved, not this day. Not this day. Secondly, we see that God thwarted their progress by causing the chariot wheels to fall off their chariots. Verse 25. And, and notice this, that the, that the end of verse 24, that the Lord troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels and that they drave them heavily. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. You know, how comedic must this have seemed? You know, sometimes you used to see those old-fashioned, you know, silent movies of the Keystone Cops and they're running around and they're bumping into each other and they're falling down and they're, and, 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 and getting up into all sorts of antics. This is how I imagine you know, this happening. They're driving along and they're thinking they're, they're, they're accomplishing their purpose and all of a sudden a wheel pops off here and a wheel pops off there and, 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 they, and they end up turning, you know, you know, falling over and just cartwheeling themselves around and what a, what a funny sight that must have been. The mighty Egyptian army, Pharaoh's elite chariot corps, grinding to a halt because their wheels fell off. Think about this. The ground was dry under the Hebrews' feet, but according to most commentators, it became a quagmire for the Egyptians who followed. Many believe that they got bogged in the mud and their wheels broke off. Beloved, this is another indication that God was saving Israel. Thirdly, the Egyptian charity is recognized that it was God who was fighting for Israel. The last part of verse 25, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord. That's Jehovah. They, they're talking about Jehovah. They know his name. For Jehovah fighteth for them against the Egyptians. They recognize what Moses had predicted all the way back in verse 14. The Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. And finally, God's sufficiency was evidenced by closing the chasm of water over the fleeing Egyptians. Look at verse 26. 
The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to, its, to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled again. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. What a complete victory the Lord brought upon this pursuing army of, of Egypt. And just in case that we are in any doubt about whose victory it was, we are categorically told in verses 30 and 31, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, plain as day, black and white. The Lord was sufficient to save. The Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And notice this, And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Beloved, it was the Lord's victory because only the Lord is all sufficient. Remember we mentioned at the start of this chapter that God's design for the destruction of Egypt and the miraculous delivery of Israel was so that he could receive all of the glory. We read that last night, verses 17 and 18. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. And I will get me honour or glory upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honour upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. You know, the Egyptians realized that that God that, that he was the Lord, that he was Jehovah. They said so. They said the that Jehovah's fighting for Israel. That was probably the last thing they said, apart from ah, as the water came crashing in around them. And all of this was to magnify and glorify the only God who was all sufficient. All the world needs to know who this God is. The Egyptian gods were already proven to be impotent, in fact, not gods at all, but mere figments of man's imagination. Egypt had no gods to save them because they did not have the one true and living God. He alone is sufficient. So what does this all prove? It proves that there is only one God sufficient to save. Only one who is sufficient to keep his people safe. And we must look to him. We must look to him. Just as Israel stood in awe of him and believed in him, so should we. The only proper response to the manifestation of this type of powerful dis display is to trust and obey. To trust and obey and in light of chapter 15 to trust and obey and to praise him to praise the all-sufficient god you know gladys aylward the missionary to china for more than 50 years she was once forced to flee when the japanese invaded yang cheng 
but she couldn't leave her work behind. With only one assistant, she led more than a hundred orphans over the mountains towards free China. During Gladys's harrowing journey out of war-torn Yangcheng, she grappled with despair as never before. And after spending a sleepless night, she faced the morning with no hope of ever reaching safety. And it was that time that a 13-year-old girl in the group reminded her of their much-loved story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. But I'm not Moses, Gladys replied in desperation. Of course you aren't, the girl said, but Jehovah is still God. And when Gladys and the orphans made it through, they proved once again that no matter how inadequate we feel, God is still God and we can trust in him. When the situation seems impossible, we need to fall back on what we know is true of God, that he is truly sufficient for our safety. He is all sufficient when it comes to our security and our responsibility is found in the simple words of the well-known hymn, Trust and Obey. Put your confidence in God Continue to obey him and wait. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord God, for this wonderful story, for this wonderful account of, of history, Lord, and how you have intervene on behalf of your people to keep us to keep them safe father we know nothing has changed on your end you are the still still the same great god the same jehovah the same almighty el shaddai father help us to look up to thee help us father to trust in your sufficiency for our safety the safety of our families, the safety of our churches. In Jesus' name we pray.